Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to After the Virus, a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guy and Espina. We're talking to New Zealand and international experts about how our lives will change in the wake of COVID-19, how we'll live, how we'll work, how we'll govern ourselves, the nature of our health and economic systems and the future of our environment. Today, the politics of the pandemic. COVID-19 has dramatically affected our human relations. How will it impact on international relations? Will the virus upend the global power structures? We're joined by Christiane Amanpour. She is CNN's chief international anchor, hosting the global affairs programme Amanpour. She began on the international assignment desk with CNN back in 1983 and rose through the network, reporting from conflict zones, the Gulf War in 91, the siege of Sarajevo, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. In 2009, CNN launched and She interviews the global power players on the programme. Her work as a reporter and as an anchor has seen her win every major award in television journalism. We're also joined by Kevin Rudd, who was Australian Prime Minister from 2007 to 2010 and again in 2013. He's also served as Australia's Foreign Minister between 2010 and 2012. Kevin Rudd has continued a successful career in foreign affairs after politics and has many prominent roles, including with the Centre for Strategic and International Studies at Chatham House and the Harvard Kennedy School. He's the president of the Asia Society Policy Institute in New York and a regular commentator on international affairs on CNN. And let's start today where we think the virus started in China. And I will start with you, Kevin Rudd. In the early stages of this, we saw suppression of information. We saw a lack of transparency in China. There was talk that this could be China's Chernobyl, if you like, but they've been desperately trying to turn the tide on this and turn it into a triumph. Are, are they succeeding? Well, I've always been reluctant to use dramatic terms like Chernobyl or America's Suez moment. Um, I don't think these things do justice to the complexity of international relations and deep trends in international relations as well. But the bottom line is that China has a case to answer. Um, I think the primary case is uh, why it failed to shut down its wet markets after the SARS crisis of 2003, when it enacted laws through the National People's Congress to do just that, but these were not implemented. Uh, together with um, unanswered questions on uh, the missing two to three weeks between the identification of the virus uh, and uh, a failure to uh, notify the central government in Beijing properly and to suppress it locally. And thirdly, open questions still in terms of 
Beijing's, shall we say, relationship with the World Health Organization. So these things are not the product of some giant CIA conspiracy. These things are legitimate questions for the international community because they want to know how we're going to deal with this in the future, quite apart from answering people's questions about why is it that every government around the world, if you put it together, is now spending $9 trillion in fiscal stimulus to try and rescue the global economy uh, from a global depression. So for those reasons, uh, China has uh, not escaped unscathed, um, and uh, there are still deep questions for its government to answer. And Christian, they're extremely sensitive about those questions being asked by the looks of things. Well, they are. I mean, China is not exactly a bastion of the free press. And as you know, that, you know, all sorts of independent journalists who are either based there for their organizations uh, or if they're local journalists who are not independent but try to get out on, you know, their own sort of social media, they immediately get shut down. Of course, we've had umpteen examples of that throughout the ages, but also since the beginning of this um, uh, of this COVID crisis. I mean, one remembers obviously the most painful part of it when the doctor from Wuhan uh, started raising the alarm, the so-called whistleblower, and he was shut down. And it wasn't just him, it was other doctors and it was other people trying to, to, to sound the alarm. So I think that is a really genuine question and we need to always be alert to that. On the other hand, and I'm really interested in Prime Minister Rudd's uh, analysis of this. You know, once they did get a handle on it and once they started being criticized and once they were, you know, it went up to Beijing, they enacted a massive lockdown that lasted 76 days, I think. And to this day, their death toll is less than in many other countries where the virus spread and certainly much less than in the United States, which is now the epicenter. So I'm just actually fascinated by the rolling cause and effect, the rolling response by different countries uh, around the world. Clearly they have questions, um, as Kevin Rudd just raised, to answer about the WHO and this, but remember, the WHO is not an independent organization. The WHO is an element of the United Nations. I spent my career covering genocides and all sorts of global disasters that you would think could get the UN's attention or the UNHCR's attention or whatever the initials are, and it does, but they are not independent. They are not able to intervene unless the big powers, mostly which form the Security Council, China, Britain, the US, France, etc., unless they uh, uh, agree. So the DOE is just an arm like any other UN organization. Um, so I think that, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how this all plays out. I'm much more interested in how the big power rivalry is going to play out after this. I think that is absolutely fundamental. And do you see the reputation of China having taken a hit on this, Kevin Rudd? They've obviously tried to turn it round. We've seen um, them offering medical assistance from everywhere to Europe to Africa to try to turn this around. Do you think that they have been successful in this or do you think that they have taken a hit over it? Well, they have taken a hit and I think the hardheads in Beijing know that. That's why you've seen this um, acceleration in terms of China's global COVID diplomacy. 
um, not just face masks and not just ventilators, but also this extraordinary intervention by Chinese President Xi Jinping at the most recent World Health Assembly with a $2 billion uh, aid package. And uh, mindful of the fact that the United States in its dealings with the uh, WHO had already threatened to A, leave the organisation altogether and B, pull the plug on funding. So what China has done, I think, successfully in terms of international diplomacy is genuinely complicate the game. Whereas the underlying questions in terms of where did this virus come from, uh, how did it erupt, and, uh, and why was it not contained locally, given the long and deep experience of SARS? These, I think, are the deep questions which exist not just in the Western world, um, but throughout Asia, throughout Latin America, and throughout public opinion in Africa as well. As for the United States, on the flip side of this, I think uh, when the international community looks at the US reaction, they see two things. A demonstrable failure of the Trump administration to assemble anything like a regular first world response to this pandemic. Uh, it's been, frankly, um, uh, shocking for those of us who love America, uh, who have lived in America and understand something of America, that this could have happened domestically. But in addition to that, as the world looked for American leadership in responding to what was becoming a global crisis, both in public health and in the economy, that American leadership was not forthcoming. So what do I see is both these great powers emerging in a damaged state uh, as a consequence of uh, COVID-19, rather than China winning or the Americans winning. I think, as someone else has said before me, it won't end up as a G2 world, it may end up as a G0 world. And Christian, do you think that China is using the pandemic as cover to some extent for their ambitions? We've seen aggression uh, towards Taiwan. We've seen uh, them attempting to strip another layer of autonomy from Hong Kong. Do you think that they are um, manoeuvring uh, under the cover of COVID-19? Well, you know, I have a little segment on my program where sometimes I say under the cover of COVID, X, Y, and Z is happening, whether it's, you know, on, on the environment, whether it's on all, all sorts of things. And now, you know, from, from the Chinese perspective, there are big people's Congress that just took place in Beijing with President Xi and, and, and you know, all the, the, the higher ups, you know, they, they were, they, they really said them some things that I think a lot of people are going to be trying to figure out how to deal with, as you say. Uh, potentially changing the whole parameters of the basic law that governs, uh, you know, the one part, one country, two states, or whatever it is, two systems um, that has governed uh, Hong Kong since 1997, the handover. And I think we're going to be watching very closely what happens on the streets of, of Hong Kong. What tack does the chief minister there take, Carrie Lam? She's already basically said, don't even think about protesting. And she's already tried to downplay it. But look, I mean, the people of Hong Kong believe that they had some kind of a democracy. And if this is, you know, increasingly stripped away, it is one of the things that you started by saying, is this pandemic going to increase the level of authoritarianism around the world? Um, China looks like it's taking advantage to continue not to do something new, but to continue clearly what it wanted to do, which was bring Hong Kong into 
uh, to heal. Who knows what that means for what it might do or how it might deal with Taiwan. What will the UK do about it? What will the United States do about it? Uh, Carrie Lam has already uh, told the US and foreign powers, quote unquote, not to interfere. I mean, she seems to be her master's voice. She seems to be saying exactly what the authorities in Beijing kind of want her to say. Again, Kevin's the, uh, the expert. I just watched that part of the world from afar. But I see in my own continent here in Europe, Hungary is, is using this crisis to increase its authoritarianism as well, um, to an extent the United States as well. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with the elections, with the remaining primaries, with whether there'll be mail-in ballots or not under duress. We don't know what's going to happen. We already have massive indication that the Russians are planning a very sophisticated sequel to their disruption of the 2016 US election. If you look at the latest article by Franklin Four in The Atlantic, it is chapter and verse of how well-placed Russia is to disrupt the 2020 election. Uh, you know, we're seeing this all over. It, right here where I'm sitting right now in the UK, the government of Boris Johnson is playing ideology instead of health policy, according to, you know, its Brexit uh, agenda. And all of this stuff is happening under cover of the darkness of the coronavirus. So I think these are all really legitimate questions that we as journalists have to uh, watch and that uh, strategists and government policymakers like Prime Minister Rudd have to also talk us through and, and watch. But I think it's very worrying that the United States has abandoned its historic role as a global coalition builder and a global force for for good in the world. Is that how you see it too, Mr. Rudd, that the lack of leadership in the US is creating a vacuum, uh, abdicating their role as leader of the free world, if you like? Well, the Trump administration is atypical in the post-45 world. It doesn't matter whether you are left or right, Republican or Democrat. Uh, go through the list in terms of what we've had since Roosevelt and Truman through Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson through to the present. Uh, this is an atypical presidency. It's an atypical presidency because it's unabashed declaratory policy and its operational strategy uh, is America first. The American doctrine uh, post-45 was that America would not retreat within its shell as it did after the First World War, that America would build a post-war global order and lead it. That is what we become accustomed to. And look, we all know that American global leadership from time to time has failed, look at the Iraq war, etc. But it is, however, the structure that we have had for three quarters of a century. Then along comes Trump and has turned that on its head. And if you wish to see the manifestations of it, uh, it is in terms of the system which the Americans created, American effective withdrawal from the World Trade Organization, effective American withdrawal from the Human Rights Council in Geneva, uh, threatened American withdrawal now from the World Health Organization. Uh, and you could list the other institutions from which the Americans are now absenting themselves. The response in Beijing is hip hip hooray. I mean, uh, there hasn't even been a fight at the OK Corral. Uh, instead, um, the Americans have simply said, yeah, um, we're not here anymore. And the Chinese have marched in A, with funding, B, with personnel, and C, because of their extensive global diplomatic network, we now have, I think, five international agencies which are headed by Chinese nationals, and many other heads of international agencies 
now are from states uh, who have obtained their position through the direct support of Chinese uh, diplomatic lobbying. So because of the nature of this administration, we are seeing an acceleration in a shift in the order. My problem is that we are not moving towards, as it were, the end of Pax Americana. We're not moving into a neat Pax Sinica, assuming Western democracies could, as it were, accept such a proposition, and I doubt that they would. My fear is that we end up in what I described recently, an article I wrote for Foreign Affairs Magazine in the United States, as the slide towards international anarchy, which is no fundamental equilibrium holding the order together and no, as it were, leadership being provided by the United States. The one caveat here is if Biden wins, if Biden wins, uh, do the Democrats uh, and the administration which he would put together see this as what I've described elsewhere as their last chance saloon for American global leadership? I'll come back um, to Biden versus Trump in a second, but what you're saying there is, and, and I read your, your piece in, um, in Foreign Affairs, is incredibly serious. What would be the manifestation of anarchy as you see it? I mean, where does that lead? Well, the post-war order, if we think about it and just detach ourselves for a moment from the day-to-day -day detail, is made up of two things. The underpinning reality of American geopolitical power, and at one period, balanced by that of the Soviet Union uh, in what we call the Cold War, but the second element of the international order has been, let's call it the machinery of global governance, anchored in the United Nations system, anchored in the, world uh, anchored in the general agreement on tariffs and trade, the World Trade Organization, the IMF and the World Bank. This was the architecture that was established. Now, those two elements of the global order are now being shaken to their foundations because America under the Trump administration cannot reach an internal consensus about whether it wishes to lead anymore. That's the first thing, a house divided unto itself. Uh, hence my comment before about what happens with the next uh, election and do the Democrats win. But secondly, in the meantime, the machinery of global governance, whether it's the G20, whether it's the World Trade Organization or the others that I've run through are becoming increasingly the internal battleground of geopolitics and becoming dysfunctional as a result, or the Americans have just walked out, and as a consequence, the institution itself is ceasing operationally to function. You want the case study? Look at world trade. World trade, you're from New Zealand. I'm from Australia. Uh, Christiane's from what's left of the United Kingdom. And so um, our countries uh, have benefited enormously from global trade. It has been the driving factor which has as it were, pulled economic growth in a positive direction for the last 30 to 40 years, anchored in the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade in the WTO. The last several years under this Trump administration, global trade growth has in fact been less than global economic growth. Protectionism has become the norm rather than the exception. The machinery of trade arbitration through the World Trade Organization disputes resolution machinery has fallen into complete disrepair. If you want to know what it looks like, look no further than the WTO, uh, because it is a harbinger of what is happening and what I've described elsewhere, the slow and steady drift towards anarchy. There are exit ramps, but no one's taking them at this stage. You're listening to After the Virus, 
a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guy and Espiner. We're talking to New Zealand and international experts looking at how our world will change in the wake of COVID-19. Christian, how do you see the uh, pandemic impacting on the presidential election, the Biden-Trump race? Well, look, um, in the words of a great American diplomat, um, William Burns, formerly of the State Department, formerly architect of many incredible American sort of uh, negotiations and deals, he said, right now, America first looks like this, first in infections of coronavirus, first in deaths of coronavirus, and and first in, in, in a pretty shambolic, at least on the democratic side of the world, shambolic response to this, um, to this coronavirus. So, you know, it's been said that President Trump was going to run on his economic record. Well, as we've just laid out, you know, the economics don't look good right now. And the, the number of uh, Americans out of work approaches, I think it's somewhere, it's certainly over 35 million right now. That's a very huge percentage. And if that's the case on election day, that's a problem. But also, um, others have said that uh, President Trump will run on a China, 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 you know, bashing China platform. So, you know, some have said it's the state of the economy. As we get close to the uh, election, it's the number of deaths as we get close. President Trump famously said that we could contain this, you know, every week at the beginning, he said, there's only 15 cases, it's going to be a miracle, we're going to, you know, stop it from this day to the next, then 15,000 deaths might be acceptable, then maybe we'll have 100,000 more. We're, we're up nearly at 100,000 in the United States, and it's, uh, you know, it's not even June yet, and it's a terrible, terrible situation. As I said, the economy, like in many, many parts of the world, of course, is tanking. Um, and then you have the sort of blame the other, you know, in, in the 2016, it was the Mexicans and the wall and, and, and Muslims and the, you know, the, uh, the travel ban and all the rest of it. Now it's China. And then the question is, how does Biden take advantage of this if he can? Obviously, this is not a usual um, election process. You know, he is behind closed doors, so to speak. President Trump has the bully pulpit. Some say in his camp that he's just, you know, allowing Trump and benefiting from Trump's daily uh, proclamations that he will turn into campaign ads. Um, and now his numbers are ahead. But, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You've got, as I said, the Russian interference, which is already being documented. And you've got um, the issue of President Trump already raising the specter of an unfair election, of, you know, mail-in ballots that will be rigged. These are his words. Um, and already casting aspersions and doubts on the integrity of an election, not to mention casting some kind of fears as to whether an election will be postponed or cancelled or whatever. Yesterday, I spoke to one of his chief advisors, David Urban, who's an advisor on the 2020 advisory committee, who said absolutely 100% the election will go ahead on the appointed date, uh, whether it's ballot or real time or whatever it is, mail ballots or, or in person. So we'll see whether that happens. Um, but I think that uh, it's, a, it's a difficult moment for, for the United States, it's it's almost like 
the US faces with this election, whether it will continue to turn inwards and abandon the rest of the world, you know, and added to Kevin Rudd's list of things that have been, you know, turned upside down, you can add the climate agreement, you can add the nuclear uh, agreement with Iran, you can add all the other things that try to make the world a more stable place Trump is pulling out of. So will it be uh, delivered on a silver platter to a Chinese uh, ambition? What will happen with the EU? You've seen a very interesting turn on a dime from President Chancellor Merkel with this $500 billion recovery fund, along with the French. They're positioning themselves to be something rather than, you know, something coming out of, uh, of this coronavirus, because they don't want to be caught by China or by, you know, an unreliable US. So I think there's a lot of interesting forces and dynamics at play, and this election will be massively important. Kevin Rudd, has, has the European Union been weakened by this, do you think? Well, there have obviously been internal tensions within Europe, uh, most particularly over uh, the extent to which Brussels provided uh, sufficient and early assistance uh, to our friends in Italy uh, as uh, Italy went through that extraordinary um, crisis. Um, but guess what? The European Union has always had a history of internal disputes. The miracle of Europe is that the European Union exists, um, given the history of Europe, where for at least 500 years it was fashionable just to slaughter each other uh, every, um, every year or so because it was time to do so. So the European Union, um, uh, I regard as an enormous success in international relations terms. Um, and secondly, I agree entirely with Christiane in terms of her point concerning this uh, decision between Paris and Berlin uh, to look at a future. More broadly, what Paris and Berlin have been doing in the last um, 12 months, if you've followed the entrails uh, carefully, is that they've established what's called an alliance on multilateralism. What they have sought to do through that alliance um, is to create ballast around the uh, existing international multilateral system to sustain it into the future, uh, irrespective of what, as it were, dynamics emerge from the fundamental geopolitical competition between China, Russia and the United States. So France and Germany actually represent the key. We do not know yet uh, whether uh, Boris Johnson wishes to be part of a new pan-European enterprise or not. Uh, he will be waiting for what his pollster says next, I imagine. But the key really does lie between uh, Paris and Berlin. Why is that important? Is that if we um, go to the outcome of the presidential elections, uh, and I agree with Christiane's earlier analysis, three issues in this election. One is it's a referendum on who's responsible for the COVID-19 debacle within America. Uh, answer, Trump. And I think it will be answered in that term come polling day. Two, who can best dig America out of the economic hole into which it's now fallen? More interesting question in terms of people's level of confidence in the Democrats or the Republicans to, as it were, recover the economy. And three, third issue is, what's your future strategy for dealing with China, which we Americans now see as an existential and personal threat to our futures? Uh, that's the grounds on which this is going to be uh, fought. And underneath all of that, Christiane is also right to point out the fact that there is a grave danger that we're going to have for the first time since 2000, but much more serious than 2000, a challenge to the actual legitimacy of the presidential election outcome. And that, of course, is a torpedo amidships in terms of the credibility of the democratic 
uh, enterprise globally. So given all of that is at stake in the United States, it is now paramount that the other centers of, let's call it, liberal democratic capitalism, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in Japan, or to a less extent in India, can hold the fort in terms of the central enterprises to which we are committed, not just the ideas of open societies, open economies, and open political systems, but the machinery which has given that effect since 45. And what I've said is that a, a intelligent way forward for countries like France and Germany is to team up with others like perhaps the UK, certainly Brussels, uh, Japan, South Korea, democracies like Indonesia, Canada, uh, Australia on a good day, depending on whether they're being globalist or localist, uh, you guys in Kiwiland. Um, in other words, becoming a coalition of the policy willing with a single objective to sustain the machinery of global governance, to ensure that it's funded and functional until, uh, frankly, the adults are back in the room uh, from the great powers. And at present, um, they're not. Uh, Christian, if we are indeed seeing a retreat of globalisation and of multilateralism, that has big impacts for um, a small country like New Zealand and, and even a middle power like Australia, right? Well, it, it does. Look, I know that the existential struggle of the last four years of the rise of populism has been over the merits and demerits of globalisation. The way I would put it is in a much more personal term, having covered this, these things on the ground as a human being face to face with people who've been, you know, slaughtered or victims of genocide or migration and refugees and disease and tsunamis, just to say, and mass shootings, that if we cannot emerge from this massive global crisis, unlike we've seen, in a fairer, more equal society, then I have no hope for humanity. I really don't. I think the world has been screaming at us. The planet has been screaming at us for years now, whether it's the floods, whether it's the fires, whether it's the you know, hurricanes touching every part of the world from the United States all the way to Australia and beyond and north and south, east and west. And now this virus that is just the bigger manifestation of what we've seen in earlier years that came with SARS and MERS and you know, all the rest of it. If we cannot get a grip and understand that we need to preserve our natural world to stop this kind of natural disaster, we need to make sure that human beings are treated like human beings and that this massive inequality that exists has to somehow be, be, be addressed while being capitalist as well. If we can't learn this lesson, then I'm very, very, very afraid. And I would say that uh, just because, you know, we're talking to you, I think you have an extraordinary government. I think you have an extraordinary prime minister who's taken on some of the most phenomenal human crises in any government's um, lifetime, whether it's the mass shooting, whether it's the, you know, this pandemic. Uh, what, the things that she's had to do with deal with Jacinda Ardern since becoming prime minister have 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 been you know the measure of of, of test of any government and she succeeded, and I think that is pretty amazing, and I think that you know while New Zealand is a smaller country than many others, I think that there are many countries we can look at as templates, and some of our you know countries like the United States or the United Kingdom are so used to being the superpowers that they refuse to take help 
or advice or the example of other countries that were already dealing with this. Um, and, and look at where we are in the UK and in the, United, in, in the United States, the epicenters of our relative environments of this pandemic. It's a shame and it's, it's, a, it's a disgrace actually, because it's about life and death now. It's not about politics, it's about life and death. And our planet and our world and our governments, I hope, can use this crisis, I hope, that's the only thing that will make it worth it, to emerge in a, in a better governance and in a better, fairer, uh, you know, world for our people. Kevin Rudd, both Australia and New Zealand, and possibly New Zealand more so, are heavily reliant on, on uh, trade with China. And we saw when Australia instigated this inquiry into the origins of the virus and pushed quite hard on that, we saw um, threats of tariffs being slapped on by China, quite an aggressive reaction. Uh, New Zealand, um, you can feel some trepidation there too. Uh, do you see that having a, a negative impact on, on our two countries, that, that aggression from China pushing back on that inquiry for a start? Well, let me answer that. And, um, and if, if you allow me just to also then return to the theme which um, uh, Christiane spoke to in terms of the world at large. Uh, you're right to point out the fact that um, China has sought to exercise economic leverage in Australia over the Australian government's um, public call for, quote, a global independent investigation into the origins and transmission of the virus. Um, and it appears that um, those threats have been um, given effect, at least in terms of two categories of uh, Australian exports to China. Um, I think the responsibility of the international community is to exhibit solidarity at times like this. The Australian government could have conducted its diplomacy more effectively. Uh, our Prime Minister, rather than just shooting his mouth off, would have been wiser to jump on the telephone, put together a coalition of 20 states beforehand and said, here's a proposal. Because uh, guess what? Uh, there's strength in numbers uh, and uh, it's far easier uh, when you're dealing with China to approach it as a coalition of states rather than to be singled out. The Chinese have done the same in relation to Canada before. They've done it in relation to Norway over the granting of the Nobel Peace Prize to Liu Xiaobo. Now they're currently doing it with Sweden and with other states as well. So this should come as no surprise to us, but if you're asking what's the public policy response should be, it would be where we do have a fundamental disagreement with the government in Beijing, then to caucus, reach a common position, and to frankly agree on taking it forward multilaterally with a group of states. On the broader proposition, which um, uh, Christian was just pointing to, you know, if, if you were the planet at the moment and you had a voice, you'd be screaming. <laughs> you'd just be howling um, over this systemic failure to deal with climate and this systemic failure to deal with, let's call it the imbalances now rife within nature. Pandemics are in part a reflection of that. Um, so uh, there are two scripts for the future. Uh, one is down the road of nationalism, protectionism, and xenophobia, fueled by both the politics and economics of inequality, which Christiane spoke of, or you have a script of, uh, of democracy, uh, of, um, of social equality, uh, and you have a script of international solidarity uh, and of uh, global collaboration to deal with global problems. They're the two scripts. 
The problem with the second script uh, is that uh, nationalists, usually from the political right around the world, say, uh, if you agree on various forms of global collaboration, you're surrendering your national sovereignty. You're giving in to those faceless bureaucrats in New York and Geneva or whatever. Um, and I've heard the script a thousand times in my political career. It's complete bullshit. Um, and that's uh, a, a, a technical term in Australian <laughs> international relations theory. Um, because the truth is, each of us as nation states, in order to make our way in the world, we sign treaties, at which point, we actually are conceding elements of our sovereignty, either multilaterally or bilaterally. So these are the two scripts. And to conclude on the point about uh, New Zealand, um, look, Prime Minister uh, Jacinda Ardern, I think, as a country, as a government, has sought to find uh, a social democratic path up the middle of this, realising what the politics of equality and inequality look like at home and abroad. But then seeking to pursue a set of international policies which rest on international collaboration, which rest on uh, uh, open trading relationships with the rest of the world, and which still proudly advocate the fact that New Zealand, Australia, and the rest of us are still robust democracies. So there's a way forward there, and if countries like New Zealand, which are highly vulnerable to the vicissitudes of the global economy, can craft that as a way forward, then um, the rest of us surely can do so as well. Could I finish with you, uh, Christiane? You, you've uh, covered, as we said in the introduction, um, huge international conflicts. You've uh, interviewed uh, some of the big power players over those uh, times. How, how does covering this uh, pandemic uh, compare for you in terms of some of those big stories and, and massive global events that you've covered? Well, it's very difficult, obviously, because like everybody, most of us are, sh are at home. W F-H, <laughs> those initials that could be confused, um, we're doing that right now. And so while we can do that, and, and I have a very good technical setup here at my house, I'm, I'm now on a phone to you, but otherwise I have a camera and I'm able to do my, you know, my program every night, five nights a week, with what I hope is the continued um, commitment to the quality of the interviews, to the context and the analysis. So on that regard, we're still doing it, but clearly face-to-face -face is... Is, 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 is optimum. But I would say also what's very difficult as a, as a, as a reporter, I'm used to being out there um, and talking to the people and getting the real, you know, the, the, for want of a better word, the blood and guts of a story. And in this case, um, it isn't an invisible enemy, as everybody says. It's not the great equalizer and the great leveler, as everybody says. But there is a level of, of victims who we don't see and those are behind closed doors, uh, either in care homes, in their own homes, in hospitals that we don't have access to right now. And I find that that um, is, is, you know, it's a cliche to say every picture, you know, speaks a thousand words. But when, when you can't actually see the victims or the prime soldiers who are the care workers because they too are behind closed doors and they too are wearing PPE, those who can get it and, and plastic shields. There's a level of disconnect that I find very unusual from, from my experience of having covered before. And I, you know, I, I worry that, um, I worry about the effect of that, uh, actually, because on the one hand, it, it, in the early days, I think it gave cover to leaders who acted too slow. And now in the late days or midway through, or who knows how far we're through this, 
it's also difficult to analyze where this is going and what the group herd mentality and psychology will be. All to say it's a very difficult story to cover in all its elements and we're just sort of almost hostage to how the rolling virus plays out. Thank you uh, very much for your time, both of you, Christiane Amanpour and uh, Kevin Rudd. Fascinating discussion on international relations. Thank you both for your time. After the Virus is produced by RNZ, by me, Guy Espiner, and Justin Gregory. Claire Eastham Farrelly is the visual director. Veronica Schmidt and Tim Watkin are the executive producers. You can also watch this series on video, so head over to rnz.co.nz slash podcasts to catch that and for plenty of other great content. All RNZ podcasts are free to listen to and ad-free as well on rnz.co.nz and on the RNZ app. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.